0: Gospel of John chapter 2. Let us pause for a moment and pray. Holy Father, you are gracious, and we declare this morning that you are so worthy of all of our praise. You're worthy of more than our praise but God, you are worthy of our praise. So this morning as we worship you, now as we open your word, we pray that our hearts would be softened, that our souls would be stirred, that our minds would be captivated by the wonderful and glorious truth of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would create within us a zeal and a passion for worshiping you that is deeper and that is greater than we even have now. Lord, let us not leave this place the same today, but let us be changed and transformed more into the glorious image of your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that you be exalted In our presence, in this place this morning. May we make much of you today for your name's sake and for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you found your place in John chapter 2, verse 12, say Amen. Follow along as I read. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother, and his brothers, and his disciples. And they stayed there a few days. The Passover of Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. and and, And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show as to your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. This morning, the title of the message is Zeal for Worship. And I believe that's exactly what we see here, modeled in Christ's life, exemplified through what he comes to the temple to do. Jesus exhibits a zeal for worship. And this morning, when, when, when we come and we gather as a church for worship, I want to ask us the question, are, are we coming with the expectation of meeting with God? Have we come here to this place this morning with this group of believers, this corporate body? Have we come here with an expectation of meeting with God? Have we come to worship Him with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength? Have we gathered this morning to worship the Lord our God in this way? As I was thinking about this and looking at the zeal that's put forth by Christ. <clears throat> I was looking on the uh, the internet and uh, just reading on some, some of the websites for the persecuted church. And one of the headlines read on July 26, 2013. 34 Christians hauled away from worship service by Chinese authorities. From a church bulletin for the Shuang Church in Beijing, the church which is unregistered and therefore illegal in China was forced out of its building in 2010. Soon after, members of the church began gathering outdoors to conduct worship in the same area as their confiscated building as an act of peaceful protest. Every, Sunday's member, every Sunday, members attempt to gather and are detained by police, usually to be released later the same day. Shuang's senior pastor remains under house arrest. Their church bulletin read this, Peace in the Lord. On this past Sunday, we held the 29th outdoor worship service of 2013. It was a sunny day. As far as we know, except for one sister who was detained at a hotel, at least 34 believers were taken away from locations near the platform or from home. Some of them were released soon after they were taken away, and the rest of them were detained at Z Street Police Station and got released around 11.40 a.m. on Sunday. Through this Sunday sermon, God reminded us that we should pray for city management, officials, policemen and auxiliary police in our country. They are following orders to do evil, engaging in crime while being a victim of sin. Let us pray that we don't be like Pilate who chose personal interest over truth, but will turn back to God and be free from sin. As I thought about our approach to church today and gathering for the people of, with the people of God to worship, as I, as I considered what, um, what we go through in the American church as we prepare to gather together, the things that go through our minds as we prepare ourselves, even in the morning as we're getting dressed and getting the kids dressed and trying to get out of the door and get to church on time or sitting in traffic maybe at a red light because we're running late maybe for Sunday school or, as we think about the things which cloud our minds as we're preparing to come and meet with God's people and worship Him, I just was curious to see if it was going to be similar for the persecuted church. And began wondering what what goes through their minds as they're preparing to go to a, a worship service to gather with other believers and to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems pretty clear to me the things that are on their mind and on their hearts are worshiping the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength, giving them themselves physically, being willing to, to, to go even physically and be arrested, but, but wanting to go and valuing to meet together with the people of God, to worship God. They value that so much that they're willing to go and, and be in that place and even be persecuted for the sake of their faith and for the sake of and the privilege of Meeting together with God's people to worship Him. And so when I ask, when we gather as a church for worship, are we coming with an expectation of meeting with God to worship Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? I pray that we are. I pray that when we are coming together on Sunday mornings during this corporate time of worship that we are coming with a sense of expectation for what God is doing in the life of our people, what He's doing in our life, what He wants to do in our lives, in and through us. I pray that that is where we're at. But I fear that many times when we come to church, it's just business as usual. I fear that many times when we come on Sunday mornings to gather with God's people, We're just coming out of a religious obligation, out of habit. This is not how God desires it to be. This is not what God desires from his people. God desires that when we come together to worship him, we come and we are ready with everything, all that is in us, everything that is us. We are are laying it before him to come and to cry out to Jesus and to worship him. And in John chapter 2, verses 12 through 25, we encounter Jesus coming up on a scene where that is not happening. He comes into a place, a temple, where anything but worship is happening. And some have said Jesus comes and he has this fit of rage as he goes through and and whips the animals and turns tables over. And some say that it's a fabricated story because it doesn't fit well with Jesus as they've come to know and to love Him. And they say Jesus would never do something like drive people out of the temple. But I submit to you this morning that what we truly encounter in this passage is we, we encounter Jesus as Messiah. We encounter Jesus, the Son of God, who acts accordingly with the zeal of God, desiring worship from His people. And so this morning, as as you follow along in the in the outline that's that's provided there for you, I I want you to see first that Christ's zeal for worship is displayed through his cleansing of the temple. We see a display through Christ for his zeal for God's people to come and to be free, be able to worship him and in verse 12 verse 12 gives us this background of what's happening this kind of transition from cana to jerusalem where he goes with his mother and brothers and his disciples to capernaum for a few days and then verse 13 tells us that he's traveling up for the passover one of those great annual feasts that the people of that the jews held in jerusalem and throughout john's gospel he really kind of highlights this theme of passover and these festivals that, uh, that, that the Jewish people celebrate to show us just the, the sacred year and to teach us as Gentile readers what it's like for the Jews as they're, uh, as they're celebrating these feasts. And so the, the fact that this is Passover tells us a few things. First, it tells us that people have come from all over to commemorate their deliverance from Egypt and slavery and bondage. So they've come to have a celebration and to commemorate their deliverance from Egypt. And that these pilgrims have, have made their way from all over the world at that time. They've made their way to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. Even teaches us as they would be coming up the mountain, coming into Jerusalem. They're, they're singing the Psalms of Ascent from Psalm 122 through 134. They're, they're singing these Psalms as they're approaching the city of Jerusalem, desiring... To worship God. Worship is on their hearts. They want to come and they want to act. They want to to bring their sacrifice before God and praise him for his act of deliverance. Some scholars have debated the placement of this passage here of the cleansing of the temple here in the book of John and Jesus's ministry at the beginning. They've debated whether or not it's a separate account or the same one that's recorded in the synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which comes at the end of Christ's ministry. But whether or not it's the same account really isn't as significant as what John seeks to communicate here to us through the placement of of this event at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. There's certainly different details in the accounts from the synoptics and, and, and John. You can go and you can read those details later. But the bottom line is this. The bottom line is that Jesus' response to the temple guards here in this passage is different. And the outcome is different. John is continuing to prove a thesis that he has laid out in the beginning of his book in the prologue. And that he puts forth for us at the end of the book in John chapter 20 verse 31 And this thesis is that Jesus, as the second person of the Holy Trinity, has entered this world with the authority of heaven. And he's on a messianic mission to redeem his people by his offering of his own life. And doing just that, John places this story at the beginning of the ministry of Christ to show that Christ is the one, he comes to this centerpiece of Judaism, the place where the Jews gather to worship God. He comes to this very place, this centerpiece of Judaism, to show that it is by his authority and to show what needs to happen for people to truly worship God. And so as Jesus arrives in the temple in verse 14... He finds that merchants have have all gathered there and filled the Gentile court instead of worshipers. The people of God were being hindered from worshiping Him because their place of worship was turned into a place of business. Literally, it had been turned into a place of trade. Can you imagine people showing up as they've traveled from distant lands to worship God? They go into the outer court, into the court of the Gentiles to worship, but it's filled Merchants and animals. Now to be fair, the pilgrims as they would travel from far places, they would need to have a place where they could buy animals to offer sacrifices before God. They would need a place to be able to exchange currency so that they could bring an acceptable offering before the Lord and pay the tax in order to take care of the temple and to make sure that the temple uh, was continuing to have maintenance done on it. But Jesus, knowing what was inside of man, he sees through the facade of these merchants, and he knows that they're not providing a service for the benefit of others. Instead, they're opportunists, preying on the needs of God's people. So they had turned this Gentile court of the temple into a marketplace. Think about it. they are stables in the room of the marketplace, in the temple. There are stables there and there are oxen in the stables and sheep in the stables and then there there are bird cages all around that have filled the court and there are tables set up with money changers. Now don't miss this. The, The Gentile court was the place in the temple reserved for all the nations to come to worship God. This is the place where the nations were to come to worship God. Yet they had filled it With items that were not intended to be used in the worship of God. The religious leaders had traded the worship of God for the worship of goods. I thought John MacArthur captured the site well in his commentary when he wrote. Jesus appears there or Jesus arrives there. And as he surveyed the sacred temple grounds now turned into a bazaar. Jesus was appalled and outraged. The worshipful atmosphere that befitted the temple as the symbol of God's presence was completely absent. What should have been the place of sacred reverence and adoration had become a place of abusive commerce and excessive overpricing. The sound of heartfelt praise and fervent prayers had been drowned out by the bawling of oxen and the bleeding of sheep and the cooing of doves and the loud haggling of vendors. And in verse 15... Jesus makes a scourge of cords and filled with righteous fury. He takes this whip that he's made from ropes and he begins driving out the oxen and the sheep and he begins whipping them and they begin running out of the stables. And then he walks by and he begins turning over tables and taking money and dumping it out on the floor because there is this righteous indignation that has filled his heart because he has a zeal for his father's house and people are not being able to worship God. They are distracted by all of these other things when they're coming in to the house of God to worship him. Can you imagine the scene? Oxen are big animals. He's taking a whip and he's driving them out and they're running all over the place throughout the temple. And you've probably got uh, their merchants chasing them, trying to grab their animals. And then you've got him flipping over tables and dumping money out. And so people are scrounging around on the floor looking for money. And then also the vendors, they're, they're trying to grab their money as well all the time. You've got big oxen running around, and you've got to watch out and, and move around so the oxen won't run over you, and you've got sheep running everywhere. It's probably a pretty chaotic scene. In the midst of this chaos, Jesus cries out, and he says, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. It doesn't belong here. This is where worship happens. Move those things out of the temple. Move those things out of my father's house. Get it out of here. And it was at that point when the disciples remembered Psalm 69, 9. And they made that connection. Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was filled. He was consumed with a zeal for the house of God. Pilgrims had come to worship God, but all they found was chaos and corruption as they come to worship Him. The worship of God had been replaced by the worship of goods. They were more concerned about money and about material gain than they were about God. And the real priority of their hearts had been exposed by Jesus As those merchants sat around, sure they could have taken him by force, but the real heart issue had been exposed. The holy place where God's presence dwelt. A place of prayer, a place of worship, and adoration of the one true God had been invaded by money mongers and people who were out for their own gain. They weren't concerned for the others who were there to worship the Lord. The disciples view Jesus' action here as a, a holy fury. Jesus is acting out of his relationship to the Father. And as Messiah, he's driven to promote God's interest in the world. And God's interest in the world is that his people worship him and be in right relationship with him. Think about it. That's God's desire from his people that we would worship him. One of my favorite quotes by John Piper is in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. And he said, missions exist because worship doesn't. I'm sure you've heard that before. Missions exist because worship doesn't. God's great desire from his church, his people, is that we would come unhindered before him and worship him. I want to ask you this morning, is there something in your life hindering you from worshiping God? Is there something in your life, even right now as you're sitting here, hindering you from worshiping God? Is it a relationship? Is it finances? Is it the pursuit of finances? Is it the pursuit of what you want, maybe not what God wants? Is it a besetting sin in your life? What is it? Is it an addiction? What is it that is keeping you and hindering you from Worshiping God. As a church, we must be intentional in our gatherings. When we gather, we gather to worship the living God. I Ask us as a church, as a congregation, are we zealous in our worship of God? Are we zealous about this time when we come together? Are we coming with an expectation to meet with God's people and to meet God? I pray that we are. I know that we're not, we don't live in a perfect world and our lives certainly are anything but perfect. But let this be on our minds as we're preparing our hearts to worship the Lord, as we're preparing to come together daily to worship Him. A second way we see Christ's zeal for worship displayed is through His messianic mission. His messianic mission, we see it in verses 18 through 22. After Jesus purges the temple court, the authorities begin to ask Him. They say, what sign, verse 18, what sign do you show us as your authority to do these things? Or by what authority are you acting in this way? They wanted Jesus to perform a sign, but Jesus knew them and He refused to give them a sign. He knew their heart. He knew really what they wanted. It's reminiscent for me in Matthew chapter 12 where the religious leaders are asking Jesus for a sign, and he gives them an answer. And he says in verse 39, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus answers them in verse 19. And when he answers them, he says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, now, they misunderstood what he was saying. They didn't hear him clearly. Their eyes were blinded and they couldn't see what Christ was saying. But verse 21 gives us what Christ tells us, the disciples tell us what, what he was saying. John says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. We miss it too in our English translations. The word used for temple here is different than the word that's used in verse 14 for temple you look in verse 14, it says he found them in the temple and they were selling oxen and sheep and doves. That word in verse 14 for temple, it, it means the entire temple, the entire complex. It means the vestries, it, it means the, 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 all the different courts, it means everything that belonged to the temple. But the word that Jesus used to speak of himself in verse 19, it's a different word for Temple. It's the word naas, which in the inner it means the inner sanctuary. It means the place in the temple where the glory of God dwells. It, it's the place where deity dwells in the temple. It's the inner room. It's the place where God's presence resides in the temple. They missed what Jesus was saying. In fact, even the disciples missed what Jesus was saying because it tells us in verse twenty-two. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So when he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it, he's not speaking of the physical temple, but he's speaking of his physical body. And he's saying that the glory of God no longer dwells in the temple, but that he himself is the presence, or he himself is the glory of God. He himself is where God dwells. Destroy this temple. Destroy this presence of God. And in three days, I will raise it up. And so they misunderstand, asking him, 46 years it took us to build this temple, but you're going to do it in three days. And what Jesus is saying is that the glory of God no longer dwells in the temple. But the glory of God dwells in him. That he is the glory of God. That's what Jesus is saying here. So in John 4, when Jesus encounters the woman at the well. And he tells the woman. Believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. An hour is coming and is now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. He's telling her that worship doesn't have to do with the geography of one's feet, but with the condition of one's heart. And Jesus is claiming that His death and resurrection will bring forth the new temple, which will render their earthly temple Useless because the centrality of their temple. Worship dealing with the offering of sacrifices through the blood of animals will be done away with. And the new covenant of Christ's blood will replace that central point of their temple. Worship will no longer be attached to a temple. It will be attached to Jesus And that's the whole point that he's making. Worship is attached to Christ. The reality is we can gather here this morning and we can participate in prayer and we can sing the songs and even listen to the word preached. But we can do all of those things and we can fail to meet with God. We can be here physically in the place but fail to meet with God because our hearts are distracted and we've grown callous in our affections toward God. This is what happens when we substitute the daily worship of God for the worship of self. So I want to charge us and challenge us this morning, church, that we would be a people who intentionally gather to worship our creator and life giver. That we would be a people who intentionally gather to bring praise to the Lord. And that as we come together to worship God, we can worship Him because of what Jesus is saying here, His messianic mission and what He has done to provide the sacrifice and to make the substitute in our place and cover our sin through His own blood. The third way we see Christ's zeal for worship displayed this morning is through his knowledge of the hearts of men. In verses 23 through 25, his knowledge of the hearts of men. John tells us of Jesus's divine knowledge in verse 25, saying, For he himself knew what was in man. And God alone knows the hearts of men and women. But now what John is telling us is that Jesus has the same capacity. We've already seen this in his interaction with Nathanael in chapter 1 verse 48. Where he says before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree I saw you speaking to Nathanael. And Nathanael responds in praise and confession that he is Lord. And Jesus, it tells us in verses 23 through 25 that Jesus was performing signs during the Passover feast and he tells us that many believed in his name but that Jesus was not entrusting himself to them because he knew all men. It's an interesting statement here. The word that The word that you that's used in verse 23 to speak of believed, it's the same word, the same verb for belief that's used in verse 24 that says Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. In fact, the verb tense is different, but it's the same exact verb. In other words, John is saying that they were unbelieving believers Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. They saw the work that Christ was doing, and they believed in his name. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself. He was not believing in them. They were believing in him and the works he was doing, but he himself was not believing in them. Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary, says people who want... His works, but not his word, can never share his life. And he also says that he knew the human heart is attracted to the sensational. Hang with me here. I'm not preaching heresy. All right. This very truth is seen dramatically in John chapter six. In John chapter six, Jesus multiplies fish and bread to feed 5000 people. And what did they immediately want to do? They immediately wanted to come and take Jesus by force and make him king. But just a few verses later in John chapter 6, Jesus begins teaching and he says, I am the bread of life. And they're kind of taken back by this I am statement. Then he continues to teach. And as he continues to teach in verse 51 of chapter 6, he says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 58. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him see, they were unbelieving believers. They were attracted to the sensational. But when it came down to the hard teachings and the hard sayings of Christ, they were not willing to accept. He asked his disciples, do you want to go away as well? Peter answered to him, Lord, who shall we go to? You have the words of eternal life. The point is simple. I fear that there are many... Who count themselves among the saints of God today who are unbelieving believers. Wanting an easy Jesus who gives us the things that we ask for. The things which make life comfortable. But doesn't call us out of our comforts. This isn't the Christ of Scripture. The Christ of Scripture calls us out of our selfish, mundane, mediocre pursuits to that which is eternally satisfying, that which is infinitely better than anything this world can offer. That was the point of Jesus turning water into wine and it being the best wine. Knowing Jesus is eternally satisfying and is better than anything in the world. Knowing Jesus and walking with Him is infinitely more joyous and infinitely more satisfying than any vain worldly pursuit. Knowing Him is infinitely more fulfilling than going through the motions of religiosity. It means more than just attending a corporate gathering of people. Knowing Jesus leads us to the place of worship where we engage our hearts, our soul, and our mind. I think it's a fitting challenge for us this morning in so many ways. As We come before the Lord, we see the Jews placing hindrances before the people of God as they come to worship. We've personally experienced hindrances to worship, but realize that just as Jesus knew the hearts of men, he knows what's in us today as well. Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. He himself knew what was in man. He knows about each and every one of us at this moment. As we sit in this place, he knows each and every one of us what we're thinking, what we're feeling. He knows how we are worshiping him and engaging in worshiping him. Think about the confession of the psalmist in Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I'm in the remotest parts of the sea, even there, your hand is with me. Jesus displays his zeal for worship. His zeal for the worship of God through his knowledge of men. That as he encounters you and I. We ought to know that God desires, that Jesus desires that we come to him and we worship him. So this morning. During our closing song. I want to challenge you if your heart is far from God. I want to urge you to repent and to call out to God. If your heart is not where it needs to be as you've come this morning to worship the Lord. I want to challenge you to cry out to God like never before and ask him to renew, renew the joy of salvation, of his salvation in your life. Tell God that you want to be hungry for Him. Tell Him that you want to have a zeal for His holiness in your life. Tell Him that you're ready to follow Him to that place of of green pastures and still waters. And ask Him. Ask Him to give you the strength to follow and the eyes to see where He's leading. Ask Him to give you the spiritual discernment to know what things to hold on to and what things to let go of. Maybe this morning you've realized that you've lost the joy of worshiping God because your heart has grown callous to his presence in your life. And perhaps you've replaced the worship of God with the worship of good in your own life. And I want to challenge you, don't be encumbered, weighed down by sin or the stuff that can become so tempting for us to chase after I want to encourage you to relinquish those things which are keeping you from worshiping the Lord with the zeal that He is due. I want to encourage you this morning that if you, don't, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know the one who was so zealous for your worship that He paid the ultimate price to give His life, then I challenge you this morning right where you're at to repent. Repent of sin in your life and surrender to His Lordship Surrender to Him being the one who is master over your life. And if He's calling you this morning, don't turn a deaf ear to His prompting. Surrender now and trust Him for the very first time. and Pray a prayer of confession. Saying, Lord, I want You. I surrender to You. I, I want You to be the Lord and master of my life. This morning, church, we see that Jesus shows us God desires the worship of his people. And I want to ask us, are we are we truly worshiping God as we come here this morning? Or if we come and it's just business as usual, it's just a religious duty. We can know that Jesus zealously desires that we would not hinder others, nor be hindered ourselves as we come to worship him. And so this morning, take this opportunity. Reflect or stand and joyfully sing and praise God this morning for the work that He has done in your life or wants to do in your life. Let us pray. Father, Lord Jesus, thank You for displaying a zeal for worship that teaches us that You desire the worship of Your people and we ask you this morning that you would feel and inhabit the praises of your people today. That we as a church here at Cross Point would exalt you and magnify your goodness and magnify your name. And that our lives daily, as we come to meet here but daily, would be given over to worshiping you in spirit and in truth. We ask you, Lord, for your strength to follow you into those places of green pasture and still waters. We ask you, Father, for eyes to see and perceptivity to discern spiritually by your spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.